Section 24 of A Brief History of Forestry. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Shashank Jakmola. A Brief History of Forestry by Bernhard Fernow. Great Britain and her colonies, India. While so neglected of her forest interests at home, Great Britain has developed in her possessions in the East Indies a far-seeing policy and, under the lead of German influence, has established there one of the largest, if not most efficient, forest departments in the world. Contrary to a frequently expressed idea that the conditions and problems of India are comparable to the conditions and problems of the United States, so that the example of Great Britain in India rather than that of any European country might serve us in the United States, the writer thinks that the very opposite is true. Not only are the natural conditions for the most part different, India being mainly tropical with an entirely different flora and different conditions of growth, but industrial, cultural, social and political conditions are also entirely different, all of which entails difference in methods of procedure. There are, to be sure, a few points of similarity. The large size of country under one government and that in the hands of an English-speaking race. The fact that the fire scourge as with us, but from different reasons, is still the greatest problem. That there are arid regions and deserts, not over 10%, and irrigation problems and flood dangers to deal with, and finally the long delay in establishing a definite forest policy. Although this policy was inaugurated over 40 years ago, India has not yet, and will, by the nature of things, not soon pass out of the first stage of development which we may confidently expect to pass through much more rapidly due to the conditions in which we resemble Europe more closely. The greater part of India, namely 62% of the 1,773,000 square miles, is under British administration and is peopled by a subject race of nearly 240 million, without a voice in their government, which is carried on by a small handful of the conquerors. About 100,000 Englishmen are living in India while the balance, around 700,000 square miles with 53 million people, is divided among a large number of more or less independent native states, very different in their civilization from ours. Industrially, the difference will appear from the statement that about 70% of the population is engaged in agricultural pursuits, hence there is no active wood market as with us, except for domestic purposes and as the woods like those of the most tropical forest are mainly cabinet words even the export trade is insignificant amounting to hardly three million dollars while minor forest products lac kutch and gambia myrobelin and caoutchouc etc represent about twelve million dollars climatically as is to be expected on such a large territory Great variation exists, which is increased by differences in altitude from the sea level to the tops of the Himalayas. The climate is, of course, largely tropical, with a rainfall which varies from the heaviest known of 600 inches to almost none at all. Nevertheless, in spite of these differences from our condition, much may be learned from Indian experience in the matter of organization, both to follow and to avoid, and the fact that this can be done without the need of a foreign language will be attractive to most Americans. The British, like other nations, gained a foothold in India for trading purposes during the 17th century. This they extended during the 18th century, especially after they had attained the ascendancy by Clive's subjection in 1757 of the Great Mughal, one of the most powerful native princes. By conquest and amicable arrangement, the territory of British influence was gradually increased through the agency of the East India Company until, in 1858, the British government in India was formally established by royal proclamation and, in 1877, it was declared an empire. As stated, native princes still control, under British influence and restrictions, over one-third of the country, or a territory of nearly 700,000 square miles, divided into 13 feudatory states. The total area under direct British control and government is 1,087,000 square miles, of which 25% 
which is 280,000 square miles, is probably forested and waste some 232,000 square miles or nearly 150 million acres of which are so far declared government property. The British territory is divided into three presidencies, Madras, Bombay and Bengal, and nine provinces, each with a separate government under a governor or commissioner, with a council and all subject to control by the resident governor-general or viceroy and his council, and he in turn is responsible to the secretary of state at home. There is, however, little centralization of government function, the provincial governments being to a large degree at least semi-autonomous like the states in the United States and considerable variation exists in the conduct of affairs. The difficulties in introducing something like a uniform for this policy were, indeed, not small, and much credit is due to the wisdom and tact of the three German foresters, who in succession filled the difficult position of head of the Imperial Forest Department and organized the service, Brandis, Schlich, and Ribbentrop. 1. Forest Conditions In the tropics, rainfall conditions more than any other factor determine forest conditions. The rains of India depend on extraordinary sea winds or monsoons, and the distribution is regulated by the topography of land and relative position of any district with regard to the mountains and the vapor-laden air currents. Thus, excessive rainfall characterizes the coastline along the Arabian Sea to about latitude 20 degrees north, and still more along the coast of Lower Burma, and to a lesser extent also the delta of the Ganges and the southern slopes of the Himalayas. A moderately humid climate, if gorged by annual rainfall, prevails over the plateau, occupying the larger part of the peninsula and the lower Ganges valley, while a rainfall of less than 15 inches occurred over the arid regions of the lower Indus. The rainfall so unevenly distributed territorially is, moreover, as unevenly distributed through the year. In most districts, the principal rains are experienced in summer, the rainy season being followed by a long dry season. But, on the eastern coast, the summer rains are slight, and the principal rainy season is delayed into October and November, while in northern India and the Himalayas, also winter rains occur, irregular and of short duration. Even where a relatively large rainfall prevails, the climate is dry on account of the high temperature, hence some 30 million acres of the cultivated acreage, which comprises 225 million acres in all, depend on irrigation over half of this irrigated area lying in the tropical zone. Roughly speaking, at least four climatic zones with many subtypes may be recognized. The truly tropic, intensely hot and wet, over 75-inch rainfall, prevailing on the plains and tablelands of the lower half of the peninsula, the hot and dry, below 15-inch rainfall, climate of the northwestern Indus Plain and Plateau, the moderately warm and dry to humid, 30-75-inch to 75 inch rainfall, climate of the Ganges Plain and Central Plateau, and the temperate to alpine humid climate of the Himalaya Mountain, with snow and ice in winter, and moderate heat in summer. In keeping with this great diversity of climate, both as to temperature and humidity, there is a great variation in the character and the development of the forest cover. At least six types can be recognized, namely the evergreen forest, found along the west coast, in Burma, Andaman Islands, and the sub-Himalaya zone, which is composed of broad-leaved species with a dense undergrowth of small trees and tangled lianas, vines, but few shrubs, as is characteristic of most tropical forest, the deciduous forest, mainly in the interior of central India, with sal, teak and ironwood as characteristic trees, the arid region forest, found in the Punjab, in Rayapatana and in Sindh, of varying composition, from the open shrub forests of the latter province, composed of acacias, tamarisk and mesquite, to the denser, more diversified, dry, low tree forest of the former, the alpine coniferous forest of the Himalayas and of the mountains of Afghanistan, Baluchistan and Burma, composed of pine, deodar, juniper, with oak, walnut, boxwood, approaching our own forest types. In addition, there may be segregated the coast forest of small extent, composed of trees which, like the mangrove, will bear salt water, 
the overflow forest along rivers and river forests in the desert regions of which latter large areas exist. The natural differences in the forest cover are emphasized by the action of man, who for many centuries has waged war against the forest, clearing it permanently or temporarily for agriculture purposes or else merely burning it over to improve grazing facilities or for purposes of the chase. Statistics, except of government properties, are somewhat doubtful. Apparently, the forested area of the whole of India comprises somewhat over 40% of the land area. The government forests, settled and unsettled, represent at present about 24% of the area under British rule, 149 million acres, not over 20%, being under cultivation, leaving about 56% either natural desert, waste or grazing lands. The great forests of India are in Burma, extensive wood cloth, the foothills of the Himalayas and are scattered in smaller bodies throughout the more humid portions of the countries, while the dry northwestern territories are practically treeless wastes. Large areas of densely settled districts are so completely void of forests that millions of people regularly burn cow dung as fuel, while equally large districts are still impenetrable, while woods where, for want of market, it hardly pays to cut even the best of timbers. The great mass of forests in India are stocked with hardwoods, which in these tropical countries are largely evergreen, or nearly so, although the large areas of dry forest are deciduous by seasons. Only a small portion of the forest area is covered by conifers, both pine and cedar, these pine forests being generally restricted to higher altitudes in the Himalayas. The hardwoods, most of which in India truly deserve this name, belong to a great variety of plant families, some of the most important being Leguminosae, Verbanaceae, Dipterocarpae, Combretaceae, Rubiaceae, Ebenaceae, Euphorbiaceae, Myrtaceae and others, and a relatively small portion represented by Cupuliferae and other families familiar to us. The most important valuable species are teak, sal and deodar. In the greater part of India, the hardwood forest consists not of a few species as with us, but is made up, like most tropical forests, of a great variety of trees, unlike in their habit, their growth and their product. And if our hardwoods offer on this account considerable difficulties to profitable exploitation, the case is far more complicated in India, several thousand species entering into the composition. In addition to the large variety of timber trees, there is a multitude of shrubs, twining and climbing plants, and in many forest districts also a growth of giant grasses, bamboos, attaining a height of 30 to 120 feet, which is ready to take possession of clearings. These bamboos, valuable as they are in many ways, prevent often for years the growth of any seedling trees, and thus form a serious obstacle to the regeneration of the valuable timber. The growth of timber is generally quite rapid, although to attain commercial size, teak requires usually a rotation of 150 years. But in spite of their rapid growth and the large areas now in forests capable of reforestation, India is not likely, at least within reasonable time, to raise more timber than it needs. In most parts of India, the use of ordinary softwoods such as pine seems very restricted. For only durable woods, those resisting both fungi and insects of which the white ants are especially destructive, can be employed in the more permanent structures and are therefore acceptable in all Indian markets. At present, teak is the most important hardwood timber, while the deodar, a true cedar, is the most extensively used conifer. Teak occurs in all moist regions of India except the Himalayas, grows usually mixed with other kinds, single or in clumps, is girdled two or three years before felling, is generally logged in a primitive way, commonly hewn in the woods and shipped, usually floated, as timber, round or hewn, and rarely sawn in size. In 1905 to 1906, the cut in the state forest area was 240 million cubic feet timber, 25%, and fuel, of which 20% was given to grantees or those holding rights of user-free of charge, and less than 2% was exported. In addition, over 200 million bamboos and nearly $2 million worth of byproducts such as lac, couch-couch, kutch, cambier, mitobalance were secured. 2. 
property conditions. Prior to the British occupation, the native rulers or Rajas laid claim to a certain proportion of the produce from all cultivators of the soil. They also reserved absolute right to the forests and to all unseated or wastelands, although usually the people were allowed to supply their needs from these. The English government, by right of conquest, fell ire to these rights as well as to the properties, but, without care in asserting its rights, the unimpended use of unguarded forest property led to the assertion of rights of user by the people, and such were also sometimes granted by the government. Joint village communities in some parts, that is, settlements which occupy contiguous areas, claimed and occupied large areas of forest and waste as commons, and, in general, the original property rights of the government became uncertain. The necessity of bringing order into this question led to various so-called settlements by which the rights were defined, properties delimited and payment in kind changed into cash payments. After attempts to regulate these matters by local rulers, the first General Indian Forest Act passed in 1865, modified by the Forest Act of 1878, laid down the basis upon which the rights of forest property were to be settled. These acts divide the forests into three classes, namely those in which the right of the state is absolute, those in which the state has property rights, but which are burdened with prescriptive or granted rights of user, and those which are private property, but on which the state reserves the right to cut certain kinds of tree for government use, teak, sandalwood, and in some parts, diodar, these being considered royal trees. The Forest Act being throughout applicable only at the choice and under the construction of the provincial governments, modified acts applicable to different parts of the empire and different in details were passed from time to time and many different local rules were issued by the provincial governments, but all agree in fixing one definite policy, namely declaration or demarcation of government forests after inquiry into all existing rights and division of the declared government forests into three classes reserves or permanent state forests, protected forests and unclassed, the latter two still open to change in ownership and adjustment in rights of user, etc. The absolute and relative areas of government property, therefore, are continuously changing. In 1900, the reserve forests comprised 81,400 square miles or 8.6% of the total territory controlled by the British government, the protected forest 8,800 square miles and the demarcated but unclassified area 117,000 square miles. These figures had, in 1904, changed to 91,567 for permanent reserves, 58 million acres, 9,865 for protected, and 131,269 for unclassed, showing the rapid change now taking place in the status of classification. The name of B. H. Baden-Powell, at one time conservator of the Punjab and acting inspector general of forests during 1872 to 1874, is closely connected with placing this forest legislation on a sound basis. The object of this legislation was mainly to settle the question of ownership and rights. Hence, reserved forests are not necessarily set aside for forest purposes like the forest reservations in the United States, although ultimately this will probably be their condition. Rights of users were under this legislation regulated or commuted. In some parts, even on the reserved forest areas, there are still retained rights to cut tongyas, i.e. to make partial clearings for temporary agricultural use under the restriction of not destroying teak trees over 18 inches in diameter and with the right of the cultivators to supply their domestic needs under obligation to cut out fire traces, burning the brush and instituting similar protective measures. The title to the forest property having been secured, its permanent demarcation and a survey of the same were the next steps, the first having gradually been nearly accomplished, the latter being still far in areas. 
the area of private and communal forests is not precisely known but including wasteland and lands of uncertain conditions there are at least five hundred thousand square miles so owned including those of feudatory rulers within the provinces of these some five hundred square miles or more of forest are leased to the government and under its control and in some cases forest administrators are instituted by the rajas themselves in the act of eighteen seventy eight there was a clause calling for protection of private forest property against trespass and encroachment but this remained a dead letter by later legislation the government is entitled to exercise control over private forests and lands if it appears necessary for the public weal or if the treatment which such forests have received from their owners affect the public welfare or safety injuriously but in such cases the owner can require the government to expropriate the land in question the forest act also provided that the government may assign to village communities from the reserve forest area so-called village forests and make rules for their protection use and management how far this policy has been applied does not appear there are still areas the ownership of which is not settled and rights which are still in doubt the work of the so-called forest settlements still going on several thousand square miles being annually changed in status and several thousand dollars annually spent to quiet rights of user three development of forest policy through the long history of india that preceded the arrival of the mohammedans in the tenth to twelfth centuries it appears that the forest area was only slowly encroached upon by the hindu civilization even when the invaders nomads by habit drove many of the native race into the jungle to eke out a precarious existence owing to the remarkable recuperative powers of a tropical nature the impression made was not permanent although much forest growth was then destroyed cleared or mutilated changes took place only slowly it has been claimed that in consequence of the destruction which was incident to the nomadic life of the mohammedans and the shifting agriculture of the aborigines climatic changes were produced but the proof for this assertion has remained questionable when in the eighteenth century the british entered india in rivalry with the french and other european nations it was of course only for purposes of exploitation and for a long time after the british had attained the ascendancy and had subjected most of the territory now ruled by them not much concern was had about the forests they furnished but small values excepting in one particular namely supplies of teak for naval purposes in the beginning of the nineteenth century the government became concerned regarding these supplies which under the rough exploitation threatened to become exhausted the first step towards securing some conservative management dates back to eighteen zero six when captain watson was sent to india as conservator of forests to look after the interests of the east india company in this direction his inability to compromise with those who had secured timber privileges led to his removal and an abandonment of the office in eighteen twenty three ineffective sporadic efforts at administration by the provincial governments then followed in eighteen thirty nine to eighteen forty the government of the bombay presidency stopped the cutting of teak trees on government property in eighteen thirty four m connolly collector of malabar in the madras presidency began to plant teak on a large scale at nilambur in eighteen forty seven dr gibson was appointed conservator of forests in bombay from eighteen forty eight to eighteen fifty six lieutenant now general c s i james michael conducted the government timber operations in the anomaly forests madras and made the first recorded attempts to protect indian forests from injury by annual jungle fires in eighteen fifty six dr hugh cleghorn was appointed conservator of forests in madras he checked the destructive practices of temporary cultivation in the government forests of that presidency a measure which at first was strongly opposed by the people but his well-known desire to promote native interests inspired the rulers of the country with confidence and finally his measures were successful various attempts at some kind of regulation of the exploitation by lumbermen were also made by the general government after various examinations and reports 
and in 1847, even a small and ineffective forest department was organized. The annexation of the province of Pegu in the Lower Burma in 1852 introduced a new complication and proved the turning point in forestry matters. In this province, the right to cut teak had been reserved by the native princes and hence became a right of the crown. But private lumbermen began to cut this timber and after an investigation and report, it was decided to take definite steps to regulate the use of these valuable teak forests at least. Lord Dalhousie, the then Governor-General, upon the basis of the report of the Superintendent of Forests at Pegu, Dr. McClayland, in 1855 laid down in statements like manner an outline of a permanent forest policy for the government and introduced the first professional advisor. In 1856, a German forester from Hesse, Dietrich Brandes, afterward Sir, was installed as superintendent of forests for Pegu with white powers under contract for 10 years, at a liberal salary and pension after retirement. The only possible check that could at first be applied was to force the lumbermen to make contracts, limit the diameter to which the exploitation was to be allowed, and mark the trees to be felled. This was done, naturally not without a large amount of friction. The result of this experiment in forest conservancy, as the English are pleased to call it, was so satisfactory that, in 1862, it was decided to organize a forest department for all India. Brandes was entrusted with the organization and, in 1864, he was appointed head of the new department under the Secretary of Public Works with the title of Inspector General, acting as advisor of the various provincial governments. The forests of India during the next 20 years, during which Brandes held office, were, province by province, brought under the resume of the Imperial Forest Department, although the provincial governments retained full and independent administrative powers. The first problem was to settle ownership conditions, which was done in the manner described before by the Act of 1865 and by later Acts. The discontent which was created by this Act came very near wrecking the whole enterprise, and much difference of opinion between the local and general governments existed, the government of Madras going so far as to declare the impossibility of establishing state property in view of the acknowledged rights of the villagers over wastelands. The general policy, however, finally prevailed, and an increasingly harmonious cooperation of the provincial governments has allowed the development of an efficient forest service. Various provincial legislation was considered, passed and repeated until in 1878, the Indian Forest Act 7 settled the policy at least for the majority of the provinces, Madras and Burma and some minor districts still declining to extend its provisions to their forests. The Burma government enacted, however, similar legislation in 1881 and the Madras government in 1882 and much later the other outstanding governments followed. 1886 to 1891, so that, while the detail of application varies not inconsiderably, the general policy regarding forest property of the state is the same throughout the empire. Whatever of uniformity exists had to be secured mainly by persuasive means. The Forest Acts, as stated on a previous page, contains certain provisions regarding formation of village forests and control of private forest property, but no interference with private forest property has been attempted, although in some parts this is more important and larger than the state holdings. Most of the owners merely exploit their property, but some of the larger, more enlightened native princes have established forest administrations, imitating the example of the imperial government. Those of Mysore and Kashmir and Hyderabad have placed this administration under an imperial forest officer for logged for this purpose and derived handsome revenues. The Kashmir forests of about 2,500 square miles yielding around $180,000, those of Mysore near 2,000 square miles over $330,000, this largely derived from sales of sandalwood, those of the Nizam of Hyderabad, with 5,200 square miles in reserves and 4,400 in protective forests, deriving a revenue of $75,000, seven times the what it was ten years before. 4. Forest Organization and Administration The condition of affairs in the Forest Department can briefly be summarized as follows for the year 1909. Total area under government control, 241,774 square miles, namely, reserved, 
94,561 protected, 8,835 unclassed, 138,378 officials in 1905, higher grades, 312, lower grades, 1,663 guards, 8,533. The controlling staff was in 1909 increased by 34, a number in all other grades increased. Rounded off expenditure, $4,500,000 revenues, $8,225,000 net proceeds, $3,675,000, 45% of gross. Variation in the value of the rupee makes comparison with earlier years uncertain. In spite of the many difficulties, a poor market, no market at all for a large number of foods, wild, unsurveyed and practically unknown woodlands requiring unusual and costly methods of organization and protection the forestry department has succeeded without curtailing the timber output of india in so regulating forest exploitation as to ensure not only a permanence in the output but also to improve the woodlands by favoring the valuable species it has prepared for an increase of output for the future and at the same time has yielded the government a steadily growing revenue, which bids fair to rank before long among the important sources of income. In 1865, the net revenue was only $360,000. It had about doubled by 1875 and more than tripled by 1885 and since then has more than quadrupled. While in the period of 1870 to 1874 the expense of the administration was still 70% of the gross income, it has gradually been reduced to near 45%, while the outrun in material has in the last five years increased by 35% over the preceding quinquennium. At first, the department and its operations as well as its finances were imperial, the local governments having no control over its officers or over the revenue derived, but in 1882 decentralization was effected, the local governments obtaining a direct interest in the revenues. As a result, the financial interest overruled the conservative policy and overcutting was the consequence. In 1884, the general government recognized the need of a change. After some struggle, the imperial department was placed at least in charge of preparing the working plans and pressure for their execution if not direct enforcement can be brought through appeal to the general government by the inspector general which, however, has never been necessary to use. The organization of the forest service passed through various stages and arrangement in the different provinces is even now not quite uniform. The forest service then is peculiarly organized as regards division of responsibilities and relationships between the imperial and the provincial governments, the autonomy of the latter being geniusly guarded. It is divided into the imperial and the provincial service, the former consisting of the higher grade officials entirely recruited from England, the latter, the executive service, being in administrative functions independent of the former. An inspector general, directly under the Secretary of Revenue and Agriculture, for some time under the Home Department, is the head of the service, and acts as professional adviser both of the imperial and the provincial governments. But this head of the service is shorn of most of executive functions, all administrative matters being reserved to the provincial authorities. The inspector general has charge only of the forest school administration, of forest surveys, and of the making of working plans which later, after approval by the provincial government, are in their execution inspected and critically supervised by him, but without power to enforce them or to give direction directly to the conservators in charge, at least in Madras and Burma. He also watches over and reports on the progress of all forestry matters in the empire. Peculiarities in great variety are also found in other official relations and in the appointing power, the general and provincial governments exercising certain rights in this respect. The controlling staff, 57 officers in 1869, now about 300, under the inspector general, consists of conservators, deputy conservators and assistant conservators. 
the conservators, now some twenty, so far as they are not directly acting as assistants in the Inspector General's office, are the heads of the provincial departments and conservatorships, and, in that capacity, directly subordinate to the local government, which in Madras and Bombay also has their appointment. Each is in charge either of the entire forest business of the province, or of a circle forming part of a province and the administration unit in India. These are, therefore, the most influential and most responsible agents in introducing forestry practices. Conservatorships are divided into divisions, each in charge of a divisional forest officer, a member of either the imperial or the provincial controlling staff. But these have to acknowledge subordination to the chief civil officer, the collector of the district in which they are located, in order to harmonize the financial and forestal interests. About 80% of the controlling staff in the Imperial Service are appointed by the Secretary of State from graduates formerly from the Forest School at Coopers Hill College, now Oxford, the remaining 20% from Englishmen in the Provincial Service, the member of which have passed through the Dehradun Forest School and through the lower branches of the service. In addition to the superior staff, a subordinate staff of extra deputy conservators and extra assistant conservators form the provincial service, which is mainly recruited from the natives. The districts are divided into ranges, for which an executive service is organized of rangers, over 400, who are now selected from graduates of the forest school in Dehradun. Deputy rangers and foresters, a lower grade, some 1,700, and guards, having their separate beats, over 8,500, form the protective service, mostly or all recruited from the better class of natives. 5. Forest Treatment With the irregular distribution of forests, the peculiarities of Indian government affairs and population, and the wild and difficult forest conditions themselves, it is but natural that the work thus far has been chiefly one of organization, survey and protection. In the protection against unlawful felling or timber stealing and grazing, the government of India has shown itself fully equal to the occasion by a liberal policy of supplying villages in proximity of the forests with fuel, building materials, pasture, etc. at reduced prices or gratis. Over $1,500,000 worth is thus disposed of annually, the incentive to timber stealing being thereby materially reduced. A reasonable and just permit system for grazing, where again the needs of the neighbouring villagers are most carefully considered, not only brings the government a yearly revenue of over $800,000, but enables the people to pasture about 14 million head of animals in the state forests without doing any material damage to tree growth. 31% of the total forest area is open to grazing. The work of preventing and fighting fires can, with the means available, not be carried on over the entire forest area, of which large tracts are not even crossed by a footpath, and in a land where the regular firing of the words has become the custom of centuries, and where, in addition, intensely hot and dry weather, together with a most luxuriant growth of giant grasses, render these jungle fires practically unmanageable. Each year, however, additional territory is brought under protection. In 1902, nearly 37,000 square miles, or nearly 40% of the area in reserve, but only 12% of the total government forest area, were under protection at a cost of $4 per square mile, or less than 1% per acre, half of what it was 10 years before, and over 2% of the gross revenue. Nearly 5,000 fires occurred, to be sure, which burnt over 3 million acres, that is to say over 90% of the area the protection was effective. For nearly half the fires, the cause remains unknown. Danger from fire has, however, become less in protected areas because of the changes in herbage and moisture conditions. Yet it costs still about 2% of the gross revenue to protect the area, and the figures just cited shows that this expenditure is only partially effective. In 1909, the protected area has increased to 43,000 square miles, the cost to $5, the efficiency to 94%. 
The first successful attempt to deal with forest fires were made in 1864 by Major, later Colonel, G. F. Pearson, who was then Conservator of Forests in the Central Provinces and who devised a system of clearing fire lines or fire traces surrounding the areas to be protected which were cut and burnt over early in the season, a system now in vogue in all India. In the jungle forests, the traces must be brought. The grass often taller than an elephant must be cut and burned before the grass on either side of the fire lane is dry enough to burn. This protection forms the most important duty of the forest officials, a trying one as it has to be carried on during the hot season. A separate branch of the Forest Service carried on the work of surveying and mapping the forest area instead of the regular Survey of India, with the result of cheapening the cost. Some 74,000 square miles had been mapped on the scale of 4 inch to the mile, the standard, some smaller areas on smaller scale at the rate of $25 per square mile. In 1908, however, this work was handed over to the survey. Silviculture. Silviculture practices are naturally but little developed. Protection against fire, grazing, overcutting has been the first requisite. The unregulated selection system with a diameter limit, which Brandis introduced, still prevails mostly, although beginnings of a compartment and group system in converting miscarried selection forest of deodar, pine and sal have been made, or rather of an improved selection method which seeks to secure reproduction in groups. Clear-cutting with seed trees held over is practiced in the coniferous mountain forest. Coppice and coppice, with standards, reserves of sprouts, is a natural condition over large areas, especially with teak and sal. Even improvements, cuttings or sowing on barren hillsides with remarkable success are not absent. The attempts at securing reproduction, especially in the truly tropic forests, have often miscarried, inferior species filling the openings. Girdling of inferior species to favour the better classes has hardly had the desired result. In the deciduous forest, the same difficulty of undesirable aftergrowth is experienced, deteriorating the composition, except in the case of the gregarious salt tree, Shoria robusta, the treatment of which for reproduction has, after many failures, been well established. Other gregarious species can also be satisfactorily reproduced. The culled and burned-over forests, of which there are many, are rehabilitated in a manner by merely removing the old overmature and defective timber with comparative success. In some parts, the larger gregarious bamboos are a serious obstacle to reproduction. Here, the only chance for reproduction exists when they flower and die. Killing the bamboos by cutting the annual shoots proved a failure, but burning over the whole area and sowing seems to be followed by success. In other parts, as in the large teak forests of Burma, as well as of other provinces, the useless kinds of trees are girdled, huge climbers are cut off, and a steady ward is which against all species detrimental to teak regeneration with satisfactory results. With teak, even planting on a larger scale is resorted to, especially by means of tongyas, that is, plantations, where the native is allowed to burn down a piece of woods, use it for a few years as field, though it is never really cleared, on condition of planting it with teak, being paid a certain sum for every hundred trees found in a thrifty condition at the time of giving up his land. Similarly, the department has expanded large sums in attempting to establish forests in part of the arid region of Baluchistan and, on the whole, during 1894 to 1895, about $150,000 were expended on cultural operations, which up to that time involved about 76,000 acres of regular plantation and 36,000 acres tongas, mostly teak, making a total of 112,000 acres, besides numerous large areas where the work consisted merely in aiding natural reproduction. But in 1909, the plantations seem to have been reduced to 59,000 acres, 
probably through failures. The Tongass, however, increased to 84,000 acres and the budget for plantings and other cultural measures formed a little over 2% of the gross revenues. We see then that though the forests of India are now and will continue for some time to be little more than wild woods with some protection and a reasonable system of exploitation in place of a mere robbing or culling system, yet the work of actual improvement steadily increases in amount and perfection. In disposing of its timber, the government of India employs various methods. In some of the forest districts, the people pay merely a small tax and get out of the woods, what and as much as they need. In other cases, the logger pays for what he removes, the amount he fells being neither limited in quantity nor quality. The prevalent systems, however, are the permit system. When a permit is issued indicating the amount to be cut and the price to be paid for the same, and the contract system, when the work is more or less under the control of government officers and the material remains government property until paid for. To a limited extent, the governments carry on their own timber exploitation. Working plans. Only a relatively small part of the total forest area, each year, however increasing, is as yet worked under plans. In 1885, only 109 square miles, in 1899, 20,000 square miles, and in 1903, nearly 30,000 square miles, about 13% of the total, or 30% of the reserved area, were operated under working plans, and each year, about 4,000 square miles are added, so that now, 1909, over half the reserved area is under working plans. Only gradually was the character of these plans brought into practical form, and their execution, in spirit at least, enforced, the conservators having the right to deviate from the plans. A map prepared by the survey branch naturally forms the basis of the plan, the form of the plan is prescribed by the provincial regulations and the preparation is also carried on by the provincial service under advice and supervision of the imperial department. The strip valuation survey which Brandes introduced covering sometimes as much as 30% of the area is employed in determining number of trees and sizes, growing stock and cut modelled after the European practice except that little, perhaps too little, money is spent on their elaboration, especially on determining the proper amount of cut. That the cut is controlled at all is the most important result. 6. Education and Literature In 1866, Sir Dietrich Brandes selected as assistants to young men who had been trained in the forest schools of Germany, in turn his successors, and at the same time arrangements were made for the training of young Englishmen in the forest schools of France and Germany. At the end of 1875, the professional education was entirely transferred to Nancy. The present force of conservators is composed largely of these men. For some reason, the training of men in Germany and France became unpopular and this objection finally led, in 1884, to the establishment of a chair of forestry at Cooper's Hill College for engineering in England. At first, the course of study extended over 26 months, during 22 of which the candidates prosecuted their studies at the college, the remaining four months being spent under suitable supervision in selected British and continental forests. In 1905, this department was transferred to Oxford University and the course extended to three years, one year to be spent in continental forests. At present, this time may, however, be reduced to two years and the vacations in continental forests. This is a government affair and probationers receive stipends from the government. Mr. Brandes, as early as 1869, saw also the necessity of providing the means of giving the natives of India some sort of technical education in forestry. The first step in this direction was to place natives, selected ones, under one or two officers of the imperial service who were deemed fit to instruct them, and in this way a few good men were turned out. Another experiment after the German pattern was made by apprenticing likely young men under some forester for a year or two and then sending them to an engineering school for theoretical instruction. This was also a failure. After much hard work, 
the Indian Forest School at Dehradun was established in 1878. The forests between the Jumna and the Ganges River were set aside at training grounds, formed into a special forest circle and placed under the control of the director of the school. These forests have been subjected to regular systems of management based on European experience and excellent results have been obtained. The first course of systematic theoretical instruction was opened on the 1st of July 1881. In 1884, the school was made an imperial institution by the Government of India and the Inspector General of Forests was charged with its supervision under a board of control consisting of the Inspector General, the Director and the three conservators with the Assistant Inspector General as Secretary. This board meets once a year at Dehra conducts the examination and looks into all of the workings of the school very carefully. There were two courses, one in which the teaching was given in English for Rangers, the other in which the instruction was given in the vernacular for foresters, courses extending over 24 months. In 1906, the school was raised to the rank of a college and the course in the vernacular abolished. The graduates may aspire to the rank of division officers. The training of low-grade officers is left to the provinces. The Bombay Presidency had for some time their own forest school in connection with the Engineering College at Pune, but this is now abandoned. Another school, however, is located at Tharavaddi, with a two-year course in Burmese and one in Madras with a one-year course, so that the education of lower-grade officials is well attended to. Forest experiment and investigations have never been systematically instituted, being left to individual initiative, but lately, 1909, provision has been made in this direction in connection with the Dehradun School by the establishment of an imperial research institute. Besides the monthly journal, the Indian Forester which came into existence in 1875 through Schlicht's initiative and the annual reports of the various conservators and of the Inspector General, a small book literature has developed within the last 10 or 15 years. Descriptive volumes of notes are J. S. Gamble's Manual of Indian Timbers, New Edition, 1902, Trees, Shrubs and Woody Climbers of Bombay Presidency by W. A. Talbot, 1902, Ribbentrop's Forestry in British India, 1900, and the earlier publication of H. R. Morgan, Forestry in Southern India, Brandes's Indian Forestry and Distribution of Forests in India, of professional interests are E. E. Fernandez's Manual of Indian Silviculture, unfortunately out of print, the same author's Forest Industries, DRC's Manual of Forest Working Plans, C. C. Rogers' Manual of Forest Engineering in India, and B. H. Baden-Powell, Forest Law. The influence of the development of the Indian Forest Service on the forest policy of other British colonies and of the home country has been considerable and is growing, Indian forest officers being detailed to assist in developing forest policies in these other parts of the British Empire. End of section 24